Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is the podcast all about learning to live a slower pace of life in a world that is very fast and hectic, or it seems fast and hectic most of the time. My name is Brooke McCallery. Thank you very much for joining us. And my name is Ben McCallery, and this is episode 181. In today's episode, you speak to Tim Silverwood. I do. I'm very excited about this episode. Tim is, for people who don't know, uh, the co-founder of an organization called Take Three for the Sea. And for those of you playing along at home, we spoke at length about Take Three in episode 174 as part of our mini-series on plastics. So you already know that Take Three for the Sea encourages people to do what it says right there on the box. If ever you're outside, pick up three pieces of rubbish and protect our oceans. And it's an environmentalist organization. So Tim co-founded it with another two, two women. But on top of that, Tim is also an environmentalist uh, in his own right. He founded, an org- uh, he founded a company called Rechoosable, which sells reusable products that replace single-use plastics. And he's someone who has actually sailed from Hawaii to Vancouver and explored the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. Oh, this is so interesting and and tragic. Terrifying, yeah. It is. It's awful. But you also might have seen Tim uh, on the War on Waste program on the ABC, which I know that a lot of international listeners can't oh, view, and I'm sorry about that. Yeah. I'm trying to find YouTube um, clips of it. There are short clips of it on YouTube. Just take a... a Take a Google and see if you can find it. But unfortunately, iView is is geo-blocked, so people can't watch it unless they're in Australia. So Tim gets pretty fired up about plastic bags. He does. He's very passionate. Not only on the war on waste, but on this episode as well. He does, yeah. And uh, that's one of the things that we talk about, along with some really big kind of topics that that I often find myself wondering about and worrying about. We start by talking about how he deals with the overwhelming issue of pollution in our oceans, you know, and I know my tendency is to sometimes feel beaten mm. by the, the scope of the, the problem, but Tim has some advice for how he gets through that with mostly a sense of optimism, which has got a lot to do with doing, <laughs> you know, if you're doing, you're, you're always contributing to the solution rather than exactly rather than uh, you know contributing to the problem but we also talk about what he sees as the opportunities over the next 10 or 20 years to turn things around but one of the the themes that unintentionally came through our conversation is this idea of connection how everything is connected and he starts by explaining why it's so important to protect our oceans and I mean, like you get it, right? You get that it's important to protect our oceans, but in terms of the vitality of life on planet Earth, I I don't think many people have thought about it. So he he explains that, and then also uh, you know the the connection in terms of our economy and how you know forced obsolescence is strangling us, and how he believes that the circular economy is where we need to be heading, which looks at a closed loop. Recycling, for example, and keeping the resources that we're taking out of the ground in production indefinitely rather than this forced obsolescence, which is my iPhone doesn't work after three years. Oh, well, you can toss it in the bin. Um, yeah, so it's it's a really interesting conversation that's practical but also big picture, which yeah, I really like. That's awesome. Yeah. 
Excellent. So head over to slowyourhome.com slash 181 for the show notes and more on this episode. So I do just want to point you in the direction of a few websites that Tim is involved in as well. The first being take3.org. So take and then the number 3.org, which is obviously for take3 for the C, but also rechoosable.com. So that's rechoosable, R-E-C-H, then usable, not double O. what they've done there. See, it's reusable, but but with a choose in there. That's right, exactly. So rechoosable.com and also timsilverwood.com. If you wanted to learn anything more about Tim and the work that he does as an environmentalist or with Take 3, head over to any of those websites and you'll be able to, to get in touch and read all about it. But I will include links to the show notes, links to those websites rather in the show notes as well. That's 181 over on the website. Hey, enjoy this fired up interview with Tim Silverwood. Yeah, enjoy it. Hey Tim, how are you going? Yeah, I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm really well. Thank you so much for, for taking the time to chat with us. I'm really excited to talk to you. Oh, it's great to hear. I'm always happy to talk trash with people. <laughs> exactly. It's the nicest trash talk I think that we could do. <laughs> exactly right. I've seen, I feel like I've seen you lots of places lately. I know you're on the War and Waste, uh, one of the episodes there. And uh, are you involved with the uh, Plastic Free July movement this year? Yeah, I guess the great thing about Plastic Free July is it's um it's quite open source. So it was mm. started over in a council in Western Australia, but um, really it's been encouraged to be picked up and adopted everywhere. So Take Three and myself have always been very active in, in spreading it out there because it's just such a great, simple campaign. It is, I, and I love it. I love that the first time I tried to do it, and I've written about this recently, I tried to go just the whole hog straight out of the gate and found out that I was completely unprepared. But what they do, and I think what you guys do at Take 3 as well, is you encourage people to just start with small steps uh, rather than, you know, try and turn your life completely around overnight because I think that's where we get overwhelmed and that's where people start to feel sort of discouraged, I guess, um, in their efforts to to make a difference. But I wanted to go back actually to your your history first and I want to sort of unpick maybe some of your reasons for doing the work that you do. Have you always been an environmentally minded person or was there a moment or a catalyst or a realization that you had in your life that turned you into into an environmentalist? Look I think in my core I, I have always had those those building blocks you know I my mum was a bit of a hippie back in the day and so I uh, was obviously introduced into the natural world from a young person and got a chance to grow up in, in the bush in Australia. I think uh, 25 acres of, of Australian bushland was my, was my playground from the age of you know, seven till I left home. So I uh, always had that in me. But um, you know, I often say that really the, the catalyst that pushed me to, to becoming an environmentalist was really those personal experiences and a lot of that comes back to me being a surfer and actually mm. going into the oceans around the world, um, travelling with my backpack and my surfboard and, and seeing the problems and, and putting together that that picture in my mind that, oh my gosh, there's there's 7 billion people on our planet and 
everyone doesn't live like we do down here in Australia. It's actually, it's a global community and globally we're having a, a monumental impact. So it was some of those personal experiences which said to me, you know what, Tim, I think you need to focus on this. You need to work on this issue. Yeah, right. And so, so what did you do? I mean, when you hear that voice saying as a surfer, you know, you, you do see the impact and this is a a theme that crops up semi-regularly on the podcast, you know, people who spend a lot of time outdoors, climbers or surfers or kayakers or ocean swimmers or, um, you know, bushwalkers, they are probably more attuned to the impact of pollution and specifically, you know, rubbish that we see in the natural environment. Uh, But what did you do to, I guess, take it from that, hey, there's a problem here to, did you start? I mean, did you study sustainability? Um, and then, what kind of work did you do as a follow-up to that to start to make an impact? Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know, the, the core reason um, to why you can reference those sort of people being the likely ones to stand up and take action is, I mean, we naturally protect what we love as as humans, and so the more we are exposed to these special places, the more special experiences we have in these places, the more motivated we are going to be to to protect them. But look, yeah, for me, um, it was really my studies that started in high school and the geography and the sciences and sort of understanding how beautifully complex our, our world and our planet that we occupy is. But that, that motivated me to then study sustainability at, uh, at university. But I often say, like, you know, sustainability studies at university were one thing, but it was those personal experiences that were traveling, what I call doing my, my Bachelor of Life. You know, they're the ones that for me, they were they were more fundamental than anything I read in a textbook or online because I, I saw them, I felt them, I smelt them, I touched them. And that to me was where I realized, oh my gosh, it's um it's a big, big world out there and it's a world full of problems and I've only got my eighty to ninety years uh, on this planet to to, to make an impact, it, it may as well be trying to steer this devastating ship around because it's pretty clear that we're, um, we're in, a, in a bit of a dire predicament when it looks at the overall picture of sustainability. Yeah, absolutely. I love your comment about, you know, your Bachelor of Life. I feel like I learned way more studying and spending time in amazing places that I was fortunate enough to visit than I ever did at uni or at school. <laughs> That's it. They're, they're so much more tactile. They're real. And you, like you said, you feel them. You do. They, they, they move you. Yeah. They, oh, they do. I have still vivid memories of sitting on the side of a mountain in Canada and just, I mean, relishing and, and understanding how tiny we are, but also being kind of terrified at the impact that we can have given how tiny mm. one human is. And, you know, you add us all up and we're having a devastating impact. Do, how do you cope with or do you have some way of managing that I guess that 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 feeling of devastation when things do feel really big and really bad or do you just do you focus on the positive all the time I mean how do you cope with that because I know I feel myself sometimes like the issues the problems are just so big yeah look I I fluctuate overall I'm um I'd like to say I do have an optimistic tone and that's very much at the the core of the work I do uh, as an advocate for protecting our oceans and achieving a sustainable relationship with our biosphere. But um, for me, I think it's also about stepping out of the the realm of our, our singular species here. We're, we're, we're fortunate enough that our, our species has become dominant on this planet, but we share this planet with millions of other species. And I think being able to recognize that um, we aren't just a, a single entity uh, with this you know gift of 
of abusing and destroying our planet to recognize that we are part of this beautiful complex biosphere that to me is um is a, is a reason for me to to act because you know even when we are long gone there's still going to be the impact of plastic on our planet and it'd be nice to be able to mitigate and minimize those impacts for all the other organisms we share this planet with absolutely i think that that um core kind of thread of empathy is so important i mean i love what you say about the connection between all of us all beings you know on the on the planet but also between the developed world and the developing world too because we're having such an impact in the developed world on you know climate change and pollution and so much of that is actually impacting people who are a little further removed from from life than we sorry from from us um you know that we don't see them kind of face to face every day uh and i think Mm. that there's something really vital about that that connection idea that i don't often hear explored when we have these kind of conversations and i I just think it's really beautiful that you that you mentioned it um you also spoke about the long-lasting impact of plastic what does that look like for people who, I mean, everyone is sort of becoming educated in the idea that plastic is very detrimental to the environment, but what does that actually look like? I know that you spent some time um, studying the, is it the Great Garbage Patch uh, a few years ago in the ocean, and I mean, what does that actually look like and how long is that kind of pollution going to stick around for? I think the reason I'm so intrigued by plastic is it's it is a metaphor for how disconnected we are from that simple premise that we are animals occupying a swirling blue mass in in this giant galaxy that we know nothing about so the fact that we've created this material and obviously if we go right back to the basics that plastic is made from petroleum so we use oil and gas and then we synthesize it with our amazing skills in chemistry to create this wonderful array of materials but the bottom line is that nature has never seen plastic before and so no organisms have evolved to digest it so Mm. we're left with a material which doesn't biodegrade and so you know ever since mankind um you know roamed our, our our earth we've been using our waterways and our oceans as a dumping site but the difference now is that we're using it as a dumping site for a material which never goes away and so going out into the middle of the ocean to study the great pacific garbage patch i was left to comprehend this swirling mass of what you would consider to be like a a plastic smog we can we can visualize what a smog looks like because we've seen those pictures of um, urbanized cities in the developing world shrouded in smog but it's now our oceans that are the smog but the actual particles are pieces of plastic they're the degraded pieces of our of our um, of our plastic lives and so this has all happened in in the space of 60 odd years you know plastic was invented in the early 20th century but we didn't really start to utilize it broadly until after the second world war so in the space of 60 years we've now consumed and left so much of this plastic in our environment that we've got garbage patches in our ocean that there's going to be more plastic in the ocean than fish by 2050 that every beach in the world has plastic on it i mean if this has already happened and we're not turning the ship around Mm -hmm. then that's when you start to look at the doom and gloom because we're you know hard to put it hate to put it bluntly but we're shitting in our own bed Mm. we need the oceans to survive without a healthy ocean there's no healthy us yeah exactly and i think that's maybe what 
a lot of us don't understand, you know, the the very real and very vital link between us as humans, you know, who, who rely on everything around us to keep us alive and the oceans. So why, why are they so vital to our survival? Well, put simply, the, the life in our ocean, the, the plankton in the ocean are massive producers of oxygen. So every second breath you take, that oxygen uh, comes from the ocean. But of course, the oceans are so much more. They dictate the weather and the climate on our planet. If we start to interrupt those natural processes in the ocean, then what happens on land is uh, is a disaster. So we really need to sort of switch our focus. I mean, even calling it planet Earth, it should be called planet ocean because that's where most life exists. That's where, you know, our bulk of our biomass is in our oceans. I mean, it's out of sight, out of mind for mm. us, but we need to change our whole attitude and our whole perception of the oceans. I, I love that. Again, it, there's just this un, like underlying theme of connection already coming out in our conversation because every second breath we're taking is as a direct result of the plankton in our oceans. I, I mean, that's something that you can't unknow once you know that. And that connection is so real and so vital that understanding it, I think, is probably one of the first steps that we need to take in order to think, okay, well, it, it's not just a problem, it's my problem. What are we going to do to fix it? Uh, and so, I mean, what do you see the solutions as being? Look, I think we need to really rethink our relationship with plastic. We can kind of give it a pat on the back and say, fantastic job. You've you've allowed our species to evolve to a, a whole new level. You've created the, the, you know, the plasticine, the plastic age, but it's simply too precious a material to be using for single-use applications, mm-hmm. or if we are, we need to tighten up the bootstraps and not allow the 8 million tonnes of plastic that are entering our oceans every year. That is the simple premise that we have abused our relationship with this precious material and unfortunately it's going to hurt a few people along the way but we need to reshift that relationship. Obviously the challenge there is that plastic is very conveniently a byproduct of the petroleum industry and our planet is revolving on a fossil fuel culture. And so it's going to be hard because at the moment the oil prices are kept very, very low, which means the price of virgin plastic resin is similarly very, very low. And so that's why we see huge challenges with trying to get genuine closed loop recycling because it's so much cheaper to get new plastic than it is to try and figure out the logistics of returning old plastic to become new products again. So we need a massive disruption. We need to take away the the range from these large petrochemical companies and really start to try and subsidise a, uh, a closed-loop circular economy future. So when people are listening to that, I think a lot of people will think, what, I mean, what can I do? How can I change the way that these petrochemical companies are operating? How can I change, you know, government policy? What, I mean, and is that where things like Take Three for the Sea, which is an organisation that you co-founded in 2009, which essentially does exactly what it says on the box, it encourages people to pick up three pieces of rubbish anytime they're out in nature, is that where that comes in, to give people a concrete first step that they can take if they're looking at the, the global issues that you've just described and thinking, I can't do anything about that? Yeah, it's like that famous quote, never doubt that a small group of citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. It's um, it's about providing people with something to do. But I guess really importantly, we've used the, the Take Three for the Sea call to action as a vessel to, to, to plant into people that 
we have a problem. Houston, we've got a problem. So plastic pollution in the ocean, the garbage patch, the statistic that there's going to be more plastic in the sea than fish by 2050, that's the call to action. Mm. And then you've just got to then start your journey. So the simple fact that people can digest that information and then change their behavior, be that first, just observing plastic in a park or near a waterway or on the beach to then I'm going to bend down and pick that up. Gee, that felt good. I'm going to do it again. Gee, how did that get here? That's a plastic straw. I used one of those this morning. Maybe I won't use it. And so it just starts this chain reaction. It's this incredibly powerful Trojan horse which gets into people's lives and says, you know what? The problem is much bigger than just that take tree for the sea. And suddenly they become our leading advocates. They become the ones demanding change. So it's not just us. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I and what I love about what you just said is that you also actively encourage kids to start with your program, Take Three. And, I, I mean, our two kids, that's something that we introduce them to when we go bushwalking, and now they are the ones who spot the tiny piece of plastic when we're out walking. They're the ones who get upset if they see a takeaway coffee cup on the ground and, you know, they're the ones who, who pick it up. And, and I think that child or adult, it doesn't really matter, but to see that change, that shift from the observation of the problem to doing something about it to the questioning of how it became a problem in the first place then through to the change in behavior is so powerful uh, and it's it's exciting I think to see that groundswell that I'm now starting to see where people are do, going through that process of you know observing changing questioning um, but is that I mean has it been purposeful that you started working with schools as well in in local areas to to start challenging the kids to take three it's been at the core of our business our organization since day one so uh, two other co-founders amanda and roberta both had young daughters when we started the project and so going into early childhood centers and primary schools and high schools was really where we wanted to set our eyes and our focus but um, for me, a lot of the, the learnings that we've developed through Take 3 is simply from getting out there and doing. So mm-hmm. we've had a very, very open book towards um, Take 3's practices since day dot. It's only now after eight years we're sort of starting to redefine our focus and sort of determine, well, where is our core business moving forward? But, yeah, I think schools education is, is the premier one because the beautiful thing about talking to young people is if you go to a young person and say, did you know that there's a problem and you show them the evidence, they say, okay, let's fix it. Mm. There's no clouding or shrouding with confusion and, and, uh, and, and bureaucracy. It is simply that there's a problem, we should try and fix it. And I think that's a lesson for all of us because we get so bogged down with, oh, it's going to be hard, it's going to be this, it's going to be the other. Look, the basic premise is there's a problem, we need to fix it, let's get on to it. Yeah, absolutely. And I also think that it's interesting to me to see the shift. I've had a few conversations recently uh, where I end up talking to someone about millennials or you know kids, I don't know what the younger generation of millennials is, but you know, young kids and kind of teenagers and they've always been generationally speaking, I guess, but always being, you know, the lazy ones or the ones who aren't going to do anything or they're the dis- disconnected or, and I'm actually seeing the exact opposite. And I think that there's so much, as you say, for us to learn from that, because not only do these kids, like, this is going to be their problem, but it's also their planet to fix. And they're the ones who are going to be here for, you know, the generation or two after we're gone. Uh, and I think that 
including kids in these in these issues not only empowers them to do something now but it empowers them to think about what they can do and the role that they can play as they grow into adults and that to me is really exciting um and again it just speaks to that idea of connection that we've we've come back to a few times um and it yeah it makes me optimistic which is nice (laughs) yeah and i mean um I personally really enjoy presenting to, to high school students. Mm. You know, when you do the when you do the tour out there, and there's a lot of uh, you know, sustainability education programs which which work in primary schools because it's a it's a much easier format to work within. But mm. often the high schools do get a little bit um, neglected. But you know, we've really sort of positioned our our branding and our messaging to be quite appealing to that sort of uh, younger and millennial demographic. So going in there and and really um, opening up the eyes to these young people that this is the problem now. There already is change. It's about to go into hyperdrive over the next decade or so. And so this actually is where the opportunities are. This this world of um, of disruptive technology and innovation is where their careers are going to be. Yeah. And so just to see their eyes really start to, to lighten up and realize that they can be the next Elon Musk or they can be the next um, – airbnb they can be the disruptors out there that gets them excited well exactly exactly you know it's it's not and that's not a step or two removed you know that's something that they can start working towards now what do you think that those changes you said everything's just going to go into hyperdrive over the next 10 years what do you think that's going to look like what are the biggest changes we're going to see look i do think it's about the circular economy i think we're um we're really going to see a a shift away from the the inherent uh, obsolescence in the stuff that we consume. So the two premises there of the circular economy are that we can look towards two closed-loop cycles. So for biological uh, nutrients, we need to see anything which is of organic nature, which is passing through our existence. We don't want to send that to incinerators or to landfill. We want that to be re, um, you know, digested um, and distributed on the land so therefore we can offset the need for synthetic fertilisers and all the inherent problems with food security. So closing the loop on the biological cycle is obviously something we can all do by having a, a home compost um, or a worm farm. But the big one is is the technical cycle, right? So much of the stuff that we consume is of very, very complex nature. It's made of multiple parts and complex materials and so when it reaches the end of its life, it's either going to be a very, very difficult job for someone to try and dismantle that item and pull apart the bits of value and allow that to go back into the cycle. So we need to sort of see a complete redesign of how we make stuff, design stuff for disassembly. Mm. And um, and the technical cycle is really where we need, obviously, help with e-waste, but also just with recycling. You know, we, we pop these things in the yellow bin or whatever the colour is of the recycling bin in your area and we go, ah, oh, I've just done a great service to the planet. I mean, <laughs> no, you didn't. You don't know what happens next to that. You have no idea what happens to those materials that you pop in the recycling bin. Recycling is fraught with challenges, and I actually think that's going to be the next big conversation we're going to have is that, well, hang on a minute, where does our stuff go? You're telling me that young children are actually processing? You're saying there's slave labor? Oh, my gosh, look at the environmental impacts of this. We have a big need to look at our relationship with stuff and to say, hang on, this is our waste. We need to be responsible for what happens next to it. Absolutely. And when I first was faced with the idea that recycling wasn't the planet saving 
notion that I had been sold on as a kid, I was really, um, I was shocked. I, I mean, I honestly hadn't thought about it and that was, that was on me, but I was absolutely shocked to think that recycling the green solution really wasn't that green. Uh, and it was, you know, flawed on many different levels. But then you add things in like, even in the last 10 years, the complexity of our tech. So I was watching, um, TV the other day and I had, I had a thought like TVs now, for example, are basically computers. So if something goes wrong in your computer slash TV, then getting it fixed is almost impossible because you think of the number of elements that are involved in that, you know, particularly if they're connected to the internet and you've got, you know, all of, all of the smart TV kind of elements as well. Whereas you compare that to a TV set that was sitting in our grandparents' living room 50 years ago, and there were two or three things that could have gone wrong and then they were able to be fixed time and time and time again. Whereas now something breaks in your TV, people are going to toss it out. And as you say, they think if they, they put it out for e-waste pickup, that it's all going to be, you know, pulled apart magically and not have an impact on the environment. But this idea of designing for for disassembly is really fascinating. It is. And this is where those disruptive technologies, this is the opportunities. I mean, there's been ideas like phone blocks or fair phone. Like, let's make a, a phone that is designed for disassembly that you can upgrade with components that you can open source how the community can repair that phone. Maybe in the future, we don't even own our phone. If that remained the property of Samsung or Apple or Microsoft, then maybe they would actually care about how long it lasted, where at the moment, they sell it to you. They want it to die in three to four years because they want you to buy a new phone. There's absolutely no motivation for these companies to design truly sustainable products because the economy is built on a linear model. They want you to take their resources from the ground. We're going to use non-renewable energy to make and transport this stuff, put it in the hands of the consumers for a very short time, get them to throw it away at the end because then they're going to go right back to the beginning because that's what the economy needs. We need perpetual economic growth. Well, Sorry, I call bullshit. We live on a finite planet with finite resources. It's not going to stack up long term. That's it. And this is the this is the issue. I had a conversation about a year and a half ago about the post-growth economy. And I was so fascinated by this idea that we need to move beyond the idea of constant growth. And I have no solution. I mean, I'm not an economist. I don't have any insight into how that's going to unfold. But to me, it's abundantly clear that that's the answer this this constant growth this and which is tied in of course with uh you know excess consumption and and um you know capitalism gone mad uh you know i guess have you changed your personal way of living and owning and and consuming things as a result over the last couple of years and how do you think that's going to look in the years to come yeah, I mean, on, on two parts, um, myself and my wife, we both consider ourselves to be conscious consumers or at least um, on, a, on a journey towards that. We, we do think about every purchase that we, we make. It goes through a, a filter and that in itself can be a very, very rewarding and, and enriching task. But simultaneously, I'm also one of these people who I tend to um, to repel against the modernity in some way like as we were talking before around uh, technology and the tv becoming obsolete not being able to repair i'm looking across at our our vintage hi-fi system and record player and i remember when we were buying that from the old guy who was an absolute devotee of, of old school hi-fi systems he's like 
Mate, he goes, it's got switches, not chips. Mm. So if it breaks, you fix, you fix the switch. You don't have to worry about this chip not being ever available again. It's like it's a simple mechanical device. And ironically, as much as I um, sort of despise plastic, we've got a lovely big chunk of old school vinyl over there because it's like for me, it's never going to age. It's never going to die. The technology is always going to be there to play this music. So I do like to, to resist this, um, this, this, this modernity because I think we actually had things pretty good. It's only really in the last few decades that we've sort of gone into hyperdrive. And, um, of course, I'm not going to deny I'm sitting here talking to you on my, on my iPhone and I've got my computer and I'm not going to say I'm going to go and live in a cave, but at some point it's nice to just sort of push back against some of these obscene um, developments that our species is, um, is, is, you know, is undertaking. And I think we're seeing that, um, particularly with music. I mean, the sale of um, secondhand record players, for example, and, and secondhand vinyl and old vintage vinyl is skyrocketing because people want to go back to that. You know, there's a beauty in the analogue. There's a beauty in listening to... Uh, to a record as opposed to a digital music file, they sound differently. First, they sound different first of all, um, but you you listen differently when you're engaged with something in an analog. It's not as throwaway. Even subconsciously, I think digital music feels throwaway. You know, you put on a playlist, you don't really pay much attention. You sit down, you listen to a record, you listen to a whole record. Uh, and I think that it's interesting that we're seeing that uptick in going back to this analog kind of way of listening to music and it'll be fascinating to see how that all shifts uh over over time as well and i think that's really to me what a lot of slow living is about it's about getting back to the realness of things food relationships connection um you know music even furnishings and things like that you're going with handmade quality things that have got soul as opposed to things that have been spewed out of a, a factory and you can buy it for a hundred dollars uh and i think yeah, I, I really hope that that's where things are headed back to back to the analog in some capacity. As I mean, as you say, the irony being that I am talking to you via Skype, you know, sitting here <laughs> on my laptop. So uh, there's got to be a balance. But I do find it really um, exciting and enticing. I think that we're getting back to that. And I have seen. I don't know if you've seen the same, but I feel like there is more of a shift towards this um, grounded way of living. I feel like there's more people taking an interest in things like bushwalking and getting out and exploring uh, nature. Are you finding there, there is a shift, do you think? Yeah, there is. Um, obviously, it, it probably comes down to the, the communities with which we, we interact with. Um, you know, simultaneously, I'm, I'm deeply concerned with with people who are, who are growing up in highly urbanised areas who, who don't get to have the experiences in nature because, to me, that sets the, the foundation for their entire lives. So I'm, I'm very, very um, supportive of any initiatives, um, anywhere from, from bush kindy to, to providing opportunities for, for young people who have that, uh, that disconnect to get connected. Um, but yeah, sure. I really, I think back once again to this sort of this huge boom in, in, in the conscious consumers. And obviously it's got a lot of the, 
the hipster um, vibe attached to it. But there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's just about people identifying that something is actually pretty cool and more and more people flock to it. So it's it's about supporting the artisans. It's about supporting the story behind the purchases that we make, the stuff that we have. And obviously there's a massive boost in, uh, in, in reusability of items and um, hopefully seeing that things that are of good quality never make it to landfill. I get mortified like living in Bondi as I do. The the community here in Bondi often can be quite transient. So the the curb becomes a dumping ground for all this stuff. But you look at it and most of it is just terrible cheap stuff. If it's good quality, it'll get snapped up in a minute and it'll be in someone's living room by the afternoon. But the rest of it, what happens? You watch that truck come around, it goes in the back, it gets squashed and it's off to landfill. And you just think, what a waste. It might have had a moment in the sun of just a few years. It's a, a special from some big supermarket or furniture chain, and now it's just gone. It's a waste. So we do need to sort of really reconnect with, with that more spiritual relationship with our stuff and get rid of the obsolete stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And that's something else that you've, you're have you starting to develop. You've got your own business called Rechusable, which encourages people to, to go down the reusables route uh, in terms of coffee cups and straws and drink bottles and things like that. Uh, How are you finding the interest in that? Do you think that there's been a big swing towards um, reusables as we're starting to recognize the impact of single-use plastics? Yeah, and I think it's, uh, it's matched by the media exposure in the back of War on Waste where, you know, an entire episode looked at the problem with disposable coffee cups, our our habit might be upwards of three billion disposable cups a year in Australia alone, and all the challenges having them recycled means that it was a big push. You know, BYO coffee cup, and I know that some of the big um, coffee cup providers, the reusable ones, they crashed overnight. So we are seeing a massive spike in people saying, "All oh, right, you know, we all know this information. We've been told to take our reusable bags and our reusable bottles for a long time." So. What we need is for just that conversation to reach a new um, a new level, which obviously on the back of war on waste, and I'm sure there's going to be many more media exposés to follow, that's what's going to drive people and motivate them to say, actually, I will take my coffee cup today because that's what everyone says, right? They just they got it at the cupboard at home, but they just forgot it. Well, <laughs> stop forgetting it because, you know, it, it adds up. It adds up. Exactly, and I think – Convenience is a word that you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation. I think it's tied really closely to what you just said, which is, oh, I left my coffee cup at home. I couldn't be bothered going back. I'll just grab a takeaway today. It's fine. You know, but I think we need to put our convenience at a lower priority level than it currently is because, I mean, it's, yes, sure, it might be annoying to turn around, go back inside, grab your coffee cup or grab your reusable shopping bag, but it's way more annoying to be left with a plastic version that you will literally only use once that will end up in landfill or will end up in the ocean. And I think just that renegotiation of how important our own convenience is is something that we all need to do and continue to do time and time again until we get the picture that, who cares if it's slightly inconvenient to have to go inside and grab your drink bottle? Yeah, and maybe that um, links back into the conversation at the beginning around that sort of empathy. I mean, what's convenient? You just being able to have that quick fix of caffeine or how convenient is that for the planet, which is now going to be digesting that material long after you're gone? I mean, mm. I say that a lot to people. That plastic straw that you just use for three minutes is going to outlive you. It's going to outlive your children and their children. I mean, we guess that some of these plastic items might persist for 500 to 1,000 years. We're only guessing. 
We've only had plastic for 100 years, so we simply just don't know. Don't know. So really, I mean, that once again comes back to this conversation. Plastic has become, or at least it should be coming, this poster child for our, for our disconnect. We are animals breathing air, eating biological matter on a swirling blue mass in a crazy uh, universe that we know nothing about yet we're making a material which is going to outlive our species in, and allowing 8 million tonnes of it to go into the oceans every year where it's killing majestic creatures that are probably more intelligent than us. Mm. I mean, humans, wake up to yourselves. Yep. I was going to ask you what's one thing that, I, that you wish people knew about the oceans, but I feel like you just said it. <laughs> you know? we, we, are, we are impacting 800 million tonnes in the ocean every year. 8 million tonnes. 8 million, 8 sorry. Million, yeah. <laughs> 800 million. Yeah. Um, well, this is one of the challenges, right? These numbers just sound so big that we can't actually get our head around it. I often use a slide in my presentations which shows this huge room of trash at an exhibition in Switzerland and it equates to 3.8 tonnes, and that's 15 seconds worth of trash. So you give people the 8 million tonnes figure and they're just, their faces are blank. You show them that image and you say 15 seconds and they gasp in horror. Yeah. You've got to get your visuals right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and also not, not mistake, 800 for 8 as well would be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your yeah. – if, if you could encourage everyone to replace one – single-use plastic item with a reusable today, what would it be? I mean, I like the coffee cup one because I just think there's a really great movement at the moment and it's a bit of a wicked problem mm -hmm. that uh, is not going to be an easy one to solve and it does require that counter-convenience um, movement, which I'm really supportive of. Um, but I guess if I could chime in with a second one, I just think Australia needs to ban the plastic bag because um, to me, I mean, there's – hundreds of, of sources of, of damaging plastic pollution in our oceans. And so people will argue, well, why are you targeting the plastic bag? Well, we're targeting the plastic bag because hundreds of regions around the world have already done it. Four states and territories in Australia have already done it. We were supposed to have it back in 2001 and again in 2007. And politics always gets in the way. And to be honest, I'm jack of it. Mm. So I think we just need to win this one once and for all. And, uh, and that to me says to the rest of the world, we actually do care about the state of our oceans because plastic bags are the evil post-child of the problem. Yeah, absolutely. So, Tim, where can people find out more about you and Take 3 and where would you, what would you like them to go and check out after listening to our, our chat today? Yes, I mean, you can find me just by um, – thankfully, there's not many Tim Silverwoods out there, so just follow the Tim Silverwood trail and you'll find me. Uh, take 3 for the sea. Rechusable is a bit more of a cryptic one. It's, um, it's re and then – C-H-U-S-A-B-L-E, so like reusable with a C-H in there. Um, and look, I just think uh, keep going. Every time that you um, do something, even as an individual, it matters. But, but more importantly, people are watching you and they're listening to you. And as we said before, that, um, that wonderful quote of never doubt that a, a small group of individuals or even an individual can change the world because that's where it all begins. So I have a nice sort of big picture Zen perspective that uh, even though it might seem a little bit slow motion, um, we certainly are getting there. And that's even the sentiment I'm seeing in light of all the, the challenges that we see with global affairs at the moment. It might feel like we're getting whacked and bashed and, um, and, and, and pushed back steps, but have faith that even if it's happening in our little microcosms, it's still happening. Mm. And, hey, once again, we're on a finite planet with finite resources, so we actually have no choice in the matter. Yeah, don't give up. 
Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tim. I appreciate your time and, um, you know, you're sharing so much of your knowledge and passion. Uh, yeah. And thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you.